We are continuing in our series through the through the book of Chronicles, and the genealogy has become for us something of a a survey of uh, the Old Testament. If we look at the number of sermons for sermons through a genealogy, it would be quite a lot. But if we look at it as a survey through the book of Genesis, for example, I suppose it's really not not all that many, all things considered. So we have come to the time of uh, Abraham. And um, during the days of Abraham, there was an advance in the clarity of the way of salvation, namely that a justifying righteousness even the righteousness of Jesus Christ comes to us by faith and by faith alone. Now we pick up our reading in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We'll pick up with uh, verse 31. Gospel of John, chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Then said Jesus to the Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, Ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. They, then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. 
which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Then answered the Jews and said unto them, said, said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me. And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou sayest, If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death? Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead? Who makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoureth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. It is very difficult for us to fix our minds and really deeply contemplate what the scripture teaches about endless punishment. There's a lot of ways that we uh, e evade this. Last time we were together, I, I took you on a journey with me back uh, we were rummaging around in my memories, I think as a child, that was the time, probably more than any other time, I took a really honest and earnest look at it. It was, uh, it was terrifying. Of course, I would, like all other fallen flesh, figure out all kinds of ways to keep from focusing my mind on it. Uh, as I mentioned to you, I had the strange experience of being uh, troubled in the night, going to my mother and talking to her about it. I remember her talking, but I have no idea what, what she said for some reason. Um, it was as if I were altogether deaf to the gospel. I was comforted a little bit because it was my mom and she was talking to me, but 
There was no ultimate comfort in it for me, at least not yet. And after those early childhood experiences, I would find a way to evade, not the way that many do by trying to deny the reality as such, um, but rather simply by refusing to focus my mind on it. I would distract myself with, with other things and a whole world of things. I would think about most anything uh, just to make sure that I wasn't thinking about that. There is something about it that is, is very frightful to fall into the hands of provoked omnipotence, to uh, come face to face uh, with a wrath that is never quenched and will never be quenched. It is a very troubling thought. I find that even to the present day, it's not easy for me. I continue in this in the same struggle. It is not easy for me to to think about it. I suppose the the closest I come to any sort of sustained thinking about it is is when I can place it side by side with with the remedy. I can think about it. I can think about it longest if I think about it um, in its conjunction with Jesus on Calvary's cross, suffering that that wrath for us. But even then, it's... I mean, on the one hand, superlatively blessed and touching because he's suffering for sinners, because he's suffering for, for me. But at the same time, there's also something that is terrible about it, horrifying. He's suffering for me, that is because of me. And, um, and look what happens. He's infinitely dear to the Father. And when our sin is imputed to him, this is what is this this is what is due to it. Well, these things are not easy for us to to think about. But we have to think about them because everything that's at stake for us. We have probably all of us seen the absurdity. Have you ever uh, seen someone who is obviously having some sort of medical problem? Um, obviously, remedy is necessary. Obviously, they need help. But... They simply won't focus their minds on it. And as you stand there as an onlooker, there's something about it that is absurd. Hopefully we're able to sympathize because we're all capable of the absurdity. 
but there is something about it that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There's something about it that's terribly self-destructive. You might find even the crying out in your own heart. If you don't do something, you're going to perish. And I suppose that that's probably a pretty good realization when we, cons when we consider uh, our eternal destiny. As a matter of fact, e even more so, everything is at stake for us. But the negative consequences are so frightful, we, har we hardly want to uh, look at it. And then the problem gets worse in as much as, so, so we have this great need and there is good news. We can't remedy the problem, but God has provided a remedy. But that's not the end of our problem. Even if we don't fully understand why, and I can't say that I fully understand why, we do know that this is historically true. That when the gospel is presented to fallen men, when the gospel of free grace received by faith alone in Christ alone is presented. For some reason, fallen men have trouble hearing it or understanding it. And this is an ancient problem. I tried to make a case last time we were together that the doctrine of justification by faith was present from the first fall of man. So you take it all the way back to uh, Genesis 3.15. There it is implicitly. Um, whether or not God made it more explicitly clear to them in those early ages, it's hard to say, but we get an express declaration of it in Abraham's narrative. Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So there it is. It's as clear as the noonday sun. The way of salvation, the answer to the great need of man, a need so great that man can scarcely focus his mind on it. And yet we can't hear it. We can't receive it. And we know this to be the case uh, with regard to the Jews because Paul, in Romans chapter 4, as we looked at it last time together, looks back at the narrative in Abraham, uses it to demonstrate that the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ uh, is not a new doctrine but an ancient doctrine. But we know that his, his, the need to assert it is proof positive that the Jews have lost it. Um, very much like most natural religion, they have devolved into some sort of just seeking their seeking righteousness through their own law keeping, at least in some in some measure. And then, as we as we looked at it, this wasn't unique to them. When you look at the pagan religions of the world. All of these are uh, salvation by works, very much like the Jews, some sort of combination of uh, 
good moral deeds, good moral living, and cultic stuff to make up for our defects. Okay, so then Paul brings it into explicit clarity. It's as clear as the noonday sun on the page. And then the early church lost it again. It was implicit in those early ages. And uh, the great Augustine, who in those early ages understood the Apostle Paul like no other, even even he did not make Paul's razor-sharp distinction between justification and sanctification. The doctrine of justification by faith is implicit in the Augustinian theology, but not explicit at that time. That would have to wait for another millennium until Luther. And Luther... Calvin and those uh, great reformers brought it out before the face of the church with explicit clarity again. But even in Presbyterian circles, uh, circles where there is absolutely no excuse for these things, for those of you that are familiar with federal vision and shepherdism, somehow we're managing to lose it again. And so we're, we're struck by these two poles. The ultimate calamity has, be, has befallen us on the one hand, and on the other, the remedy has been provided, and yet our minds are strangely uh, darkened to the remedy. I wanted to turn our attention again to um, a couple of issues pertaining to the doctrine of justification and the progress that was made during the time of, um, of uh, Abraham in this regard. So, um, so, so really, I, w I wanted to look at I wanted to look at two things, but I guess in some ways our application is already is already in front of us. the The Apostle Peter exalt, exhorts us to make our calling and election sure, and it should be somewhat troubling to us that. Um, Human beings, and we're like everybody else, but human beings apparently have found this very difficult to understand. We can speculate as to why. The leading theory in my mind is that the covenant of works is, is deeply written in our, on our insides. Uh, and that um, covenant of grace. That, so entering into life by works is natural to us. But a covenant of grace can only come by special revelation coming to us externally. Because by nature, there's nothing left for us but a fearful expectation of, of coming judgment. So I guess our application, we should be applying all the way through, which is making sure that we have understood the gospel. And to anticipate where we're going, making sure 
that we are trusting in Christ and his accomplished work and in him alone and not in ourselves, right? Our own righteousness, and you find this declared from, um, from Isaiah to the Apostle Paul, our own righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. So I wanted to look at just two things with respect to the doctrine of justification as it relates to Abraham and what's the enlargement of understanding that's coming in the time of Abraham. First of all, I wanted to focus on justification by faith alone. Um, it's not faith and works, but a, a justifying righteousness that comes by faith alone. I'm just going to do a little bit with that. And then uh, do more with the fact that even in the days of Abraham, as it was from the beginning of the, the world, Christ himself is the conscious object of faith and not, not anything else and certainly not another. So first, just some very brief reflections on the fact that justifying righteousness comes by faith alone. Um, this should, this should really be, this should be easy. This should be a slam dunk. Last time we were together, we read through uh, Romans chapter four and, and Paul makes it painfully clear that uh, we are going to be justified by, by the righteousness of another. We are justified by resting our case, not upon what we have done, but upon what Christ has done. In recent days, these texts, well, this is not the first time this species of error has come around. I, I, I guess I've just been stunned to see that it has come around in not just Protestant, not just Protestant circles, but Reformed and Presbyterian uh, circles. Uh, and I can't, I can't do this in detail. There really wouldn't be any point, I don't suppose. But I, I can give you some some hints to resolve the evasion that is made with respect to these texts. Sometimes it is said that all Paul is denying is that we are not we're not he's not denying that we are saved by by faith and no works at all. What he's denying is that any ceremonial works are added and in that way particularly helpful. And so they'll look at the at the context and they'll see Paul's uh, concern that um, ceremonial works like circumcision and so on are being added by uh, Judaizers. So we need to trust in Christ, they would say, but also these other ceremonial works need to be need to be added. Um, so you you see Paul's polemic against the concision, for example, in in Philippians, and he doesn't use that same terminology, but the same ideas in view in um, Galatians. So they'll say, you know, it's not. It's not a denial of any works, it's just a denial of ceremonial works. But I would, I would just say this about that. Um, 
it is true and this is always true it's it's true that that paul is addressing a specific historic concrete situation people that are adding not just works in general or whatever works but very specific works are in view um, that's true and when we do contextual exegesis we notice and we want to say those things but i want you to notice that when he talks about uh, when he answers it he answers it in terms of broader principles which could be applied to a great many other things let me just give you an example if you just flip really quickly to to romans chapter 11 So, of course, Paul wouldn't want the particular work of circumcision to be added, but when he, when he addresses these, even that particular historical concrete problem for particular historical concrete errorists, he does it in terms of broader principles that would apply to a great many other things. And when you think about works, all the other works, whether they be ceremonial or moral, look at um, Romans 11.6. And if by grace, then is it no more of works? Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more work. And we handle, we handle a lot of difficulties in this way. When, we, when we're looking at a particular, we might very well draw back to more general principles that, that handle the, the particular and that's what Paul does over and over again. But also, um, if I were to commend to you just one text, the, the recent errorists in this regard have found uh, Philippians 3 very difficult to evade through these kinds of things um, because Paul uh, states it in such broader uh, principle. So I'd encourage you to have a look at, at uh, Philippians chapter 3. And really that's all I'm going to do with the alone part of uh, justification by, by faith alone. Um, just keep that one hint in mind when you, when you bump into these particular kinds of problems and come back. Paul says if it's, if it's of grace, then it's not of works. And if it's works, it's not of grace. And there's no way when he states that general principle in that way that you can limit the work just to the ceremonial work of circumcision or even some collection. Uh, he's putting these things with respect to our justification in an absolute opposition. He states a general principle to deal with the uh, particular. And that's that's really all that is necessary to um, to put this particular class of errors uh, to flight. We are going to be uh, justified by by trusting in Christ and His accomplished work. It's the only thing that could satisfy God's justice because it's the because it's the only work that's perfect and because of the dignity of his person in offering atonement. So then this brings us to the second part of this, which is um, 
that, and in some ways it's really not a different question. Um, ultimately, ultimately, the faith of God's people has always been in Jesus Christ. And Abraham's faith was, was in Jesus Christ. Or another way of saying this, contrary to what dispensationalism has wanted to assert, at no time and in no age, under no administration under the covenant of grace, have men ever been saved by their own works, by their own doing. Uh, they have always been saved by trusting in Christ. Um, Believers under the Old Testament were looking forward to him and trusting him proleptically. Now we are trusting him, looking looking back, but all trusting in him. And I say it's really not a different it's really not a different question than the justification by faith alone, because ultimately it raises the question: What are you relying upon? And the answer is Jesus. And perhaps even more profoundly, it has always been Jesus for all people and all times, and he should have the glory of every single salvation that has ever happened, that has ever uh, transpired. Uh, what we can't say, even as Abraham couldn't say, or Moses after him, is that we're trusting in him in some measure and trusting in ourselves in some measure. Because at the end of the day, we don't have anything to bring to the table. Nothing less than perfection will do. And there's not a single thing that we have ever done that is not mixed with the iniquity, imperfection, and sin that is us, that is uh, ourselves. And so I want to work work our way backward, and, and perhaps with a, with a Johannine emphasis, because in some ways, in the um, if I were to liken this in in dealing with Genesis 15, and we're told that Abraham believes, and it's reckoned to him for righteousness. But what is the object of his faith? What is he putting his faith in? We could say the promise, and that's clear enough in the text. A promise has been delivered to him. But can we say more? Is it implicit, at least in the text, that his faith is resting upon Jesus Christ? And given the fact that we have the New Testament, it's like having it's like having a math book with the answers in the back. Even if you can't do the math, you can get the answer. And if you have the answer, have you ever done this as a math student? If you have the answer, maybe you can go back and you can work the math problem and finally understand the math problem. Well, we have the answer. Uh, we read Romans 4 together not too long ago in Pastor Price's sermons on Israel. Uh, Galatians 3 came up. Um, Galatians 3 is a, is a similar text to, to Romans chapter 4 uh, in which Abraham is presented to us as a model of justifying faith. But it's a justifying faith in Jesus Christ in, in the whole context. So he's presented this model as a justifying faith in Jesus Christ, both for the uncircumcised, because he was justified before the ordinance of circumcision was given, and also the circumcised. He continued to be justified after he was circumcised. So he is the father of believing Jews and believing Gentiles in this regard. 
we are properly Abraham's seed as we share his faith. But he's he's our model in this regard. And of course, we're not justified by believing God in a very, believing in God or believing God in a very vague sort of way. We rest our case upon upon the, the Lord Jesus. And he's, he's presented as a model. And the covenant made with him is actually made characterized in Galatians chapter 3 as a covenant made with him in Christ. So uh, Abraham is presented to us in the New Testament as a model of um, what it is to believe upon, upon Jesus Christ. Now, if we were left in any doubt about that, and we, and we should not be, I, I wanted to read John 8 again tonight, because in, in verse 56... The Lord Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. Uh, this, is, this is a remarkable text. Um, it's something that um, the theologians at Dallas Theological Seminary said they, they thought was impossible. But yet here it is, Jesus saying it. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. But to, to make it even clearer, not just like he was hoping for it, but, but he did see it. He didn't live to see it. Uh, but he saw it in the promise. He saw something that is rightly and truly characterized as the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he rejoiced in it, which speaks of a converted heart, a heart that's no longer in its uh, no longer in its natural uh, condition. Now, John chapter eight is also very interesting, and probably two sermons ago I touched on this a little bit. Because he reads the promise that is made to Abraham, the promise of seed. So Abraham is the recipient of a promise and his seed with him. So he reads that Genesis 15 promise in the light of the Genesis 3 dichotomy between uh, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So in, a, in other words... Um, just to look at the Genesis 3 thing. So obviously with respect to biology, all of the children are going to be Eve's children. Precisely none of them are going to be the biological children of Satan. So biologically, they're all the seed of Eve, even as all of the Jews to whom Jesus is speaking are the biological children of Abraham. But the promise in 315 has, has regard to a spiritual affinity, spiritual family, if you will. Some of Eve's biological children are going to look like their mother spiritually, believing in the, in the Lord Jesus to, to come. Uh, other of her biological children are going to have a spiritual family resemblance to the devil. Um, a liar from the beginning, a murderer from the beginning. And if you notice in our text in verse 44, um, the beginning is in view. 
right? Jesus is taking us back to the Genesis 3 uh, dichotomy between the seed of the serpent and the seed of, of the woman. But now the seed of the woman, as you, as you trace it through the genealogy, makes its way to Abraham, and the promise is presented to him in that regard. And Jesus reads these things together. Uh, Abraham himself is uh, one of the seed of the woman that bears a spiritual affinity with, uh, with Mother Eve. And the, the promise is going to descend into his family that ultimately the Lord Jesus, the great promised seed, is going to come uh, through his particular line. Now John doesn't John doesn't leave us there. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. John is going to provide us some additional help. And pick up with me at verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And verse 8 is very important because John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes us back to the beginning. The devil sinneth from the beginning, so he takes our minds back there. And he interprets for us, the serpent is the wicked one, the devil. The seed promised to Eve that would crush the head of the serpent is none other than the Son of God, manifested so that he might destroy the works of the devil. And then he's going to continue his discussion in terms of seed. Whoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So I want you to notice here, uh, John uses slightly different terminology, but the, but the language of seed is persistent. He's taken us back to the beginning. But rather than talking in terms of seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, he, he unriddles it, if you will, the children of God and the children of the devil as functionally equivalent titles for these two groups of people. And then he, he stays back there in the past, and then he's going to run us all the way from the beginning to his own present day, verse 12. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. So Adam and Eve were told that there would be the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, the children of God, uh, and the, and the children of the, the wicked one, and then immediately that manifests in their family with Cain and Abel. But if you look at verse 13, now, now John zooms forward 4,000 years into the future and applies it immediately to his own generation. 
it's interesting um like in our age <coughs> with the rise of critical theory human beings are being divided up in all kinds of ways uh, and those those differences are, are really being emphasized so are you are you white are you minority are you rich or poor are you business owner or worker human beings are being divided up in all of these ways but John says the thing that the only division between human beings that really matters is what family are you a part of are you part of the family of God the seed of the woman of the seed of Abraham sharing father Abraham's faith are you part of that family or are you part of the family of the wicked one do you bear the spiritual marks of the devil as father, liar, murderer uh, from the beginning? But notice there in verse 12, he's at the beginning. And then verse 13, he addresses his generation directly. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. The same way that Cain hated Abel and that an enmity was established between the two lines that enmity is going to continue and it is going to continue until uh, the end of things and so with this in view this helps us flip with me now to to genesis chapter 15 so so the lord jesus reads genesis 15 in the light of genesis 3 and now hopefully we're, we're in a better position to do the math. That first pro proclamation always had Jesus as the object of faith. And maybe let me do just one other thing, because this also helps with that Genesis 3.15 promise. If you were to ask the seed that's in view, is it the Lord Jesus or is it his people? I really think that the best and simplest answer to that is yes. Uh, sometimes theologians will call this the mystical Christ, head and body. Um, but we find the Genesis 3.15 promise used in both ways. It seems tolerably clear in the promise itself, but, but John talks immediately about the Son of God destroying the works of the devil. But at the end of the epistle to the Romans, uh, chapter 16, Paul applies it uh, to the people of God. Now, of course, we would say, um, even without words, um, uh, Jesus has to be in view when uh, Paul assures them that they will tread the wicked one under their feet uh, shortly verse 20 of chapter 16, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Because ultimately they can have no victory over the wicked one unless Jesus himself won that victory. We trample him beneath our feet because our glorious head has done so. So that, that also helps us to understand that um, that that seed in these passages doesn't always have to be bifurcated between uh, um, the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. We can think about his, his people hidden in him, comprehended in him, or we can use the 
the biblical image of head and body, um, but the totality of that it really is in view. In chapter 15, already after some years of waiting, the promise of seed is renewed to Abraham. And it, and it is in this that he, um, and I don't think necessarily the text is meant to imply that he, uh, that he only now believes for the first time, but he, he does exercise faith in the promise. So chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, After these things the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go child, childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be in thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars that thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Let me just pause there. So just con consider this in context. We get the promise of seed in Genesis 3.15. The promise of the seed in, in Genesis chapter 5 is, is tracked through the family of Seth until it arrives in Noah. It descends into the family of Shem. Shem's line is followed until we get to Abraham. So we're not doing a strange thing to read Genesis 15 in the light of Genesis chapter 3. As a matter of fact, if we understand what Jesus did in John chapter 8, he's already given us the answer. It's the answer in the back of the math book, but hopefully now we're able to do the math. And if we were to look at this text and say, but the it seems like the multiplicity of the children is... Uh, is in view that need not disturb us because head and body are all contemplated together in this the Lord Jesus Christ as preeminent the Lord Jesus Christ as the great seed you might say the that one great child without which not any of the others but all are contemplated together uh, and as as Paul will uh, point out uh, Abraham is going to have biological seed. As Jesus points out, not all of those biological seed are of his spiritual family. They're not of the family of God, not the seed of the woman, not the seed of Abraham with respect to faith. But more than his biological children will be his spiritual children. They will share his faith uh, in the Lord Jesus. And it's very interesting if you then follow the text and the trajectory it goes, um, the Lord is going to now give him, and it's amazing that it's immediately upon the heels of this, this very poignant, meaningful, powerful, and even frightening 
covenant ceremony, uh, the dividing of the of the animals and God's passing through be, uh, between them. Um, uh, but a but a covenant ceremony confirming that great um, covenant transaction Abraham has has trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ for for the saving of of his soul. So let me just uh, draw together the important strands with respect to with respect to application. Um, we don't want to think about the great business of heaven and and hell. We certainly don't want to focus our minds on eternal punishment because it's frightening, it's it's disturbing. But we need to think about it because everything is at stake for us. Our salvation has been tied up in faith. And faith presupposes an object. What is that object? A justifying righteousness has only been provided in Jesus Christ. And he will not share the glory of salvation with any other. And what we need to do is exercise faith upon him. And we need to ever be watchful concerning ourselves that we're not... I think our, our tendency is always going to be like to trust in ourselves in in some measure or like if I do I I did a little better today so I feel like I'm accepted I did a little worse today so I feel like I'm rejected or cast off or or something like that when that comes into the into the legal sphere um, those kinds of thoughts, those kinds of contemplations are altogether deadly. We have everything that we need in Jesus Christ. We simply rest our case upon him. And in the case of the elect, that is what they're going to do. And this is no new doctrine. This is the one and only doctrine, the one and only way of salvation from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation and then all after ages to the end of the world. So I leave you with a, a question for self-examination. What is it that you are trusting in? Who is it that you are trusting in? My old philosophy professor used to say you can't think too clear a thought and that's true and it becomes all the more important when everything is at stake for us let us pray together <clears throat>